This is five minutes to midnight. I am Mohammed Aldefani. Fighting between Azerbaijan and Armenia over the Armenian majority enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, which lies inside Azerbaijan, has been flaring on and off since 1992, a year after the collapse of the Soviet Union. To complicate matters, the conflict has been internationalized right from the outset, with Russia, Turkey and Iran involved to a greater or lesser extent. Despite three wars and nearly 40,000 dead, the conflict over Karabakh has received scant coverage from the Western media, with only the most superficial explanation or analysis. Our guest in this episode is Caucasus analyst Ann Thompson, who will shed light on the origins and nature of the conflict and the roles of Russia, Turkey and Iran in it. Welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight, Ann Thompson. Thank you very much, Mohammed. Okay, let's start by telling us something about your background. Well, my background, I suppose, is uh, in professional terms fairly mixed. I studied uh, Russian and French language and literature and then went on to work using Russian. um, This is back in the 80s. Uh, for a human rights organization uh, known as uh, Keston College that researched into religion uh, in uh, communist and then later former communist uh, countries. Uh, while I was there, the Soviet Union, it was the period of uh, Gorbachev uh, and so a period of perestroika of opening up and a big change in terms of human rights and what was uh, allowed and wasn't allowed, uh, particularly in the Soviet Union, which I focused on uh from there i went to work for bbc monitoring um as a sub editor i worked on material um, from the soviet union and then uh, while i was working there uh, as you will remember uh then there was uh, there was the coup followed by the collapse of the soviet union uh, so it was a fascinating time to be there working on um uh, editing translations of uh Soviet and then later Russian broadcasts and broadcasts from all the former Soviet countries. Uh, working at BBC Montreal gave me the opportunity to work in Moscow for a year in 95, 96, and then in 1997 to go and open um, a unit for monitoring in Baku in Azerbaijan. Uh, and so that was a, you know, the Azerbaijan as a republic, it was a young country. A uh, time of rapid development, so it was a fascinating time to be there, and also to, in that time, I would travel to Armenia and to Georgia as we covered the South Caucasus, and uh, and then later the North Caucasus uh, as well. Though it wasn't uh, in my day so easy to travel there, uh, and then after eight years, I took the choice to stay in Azerbaijan rather than return to work uh, in the UK for the BBC. I learned Azerbaijani. I worked uh, freelance and for a variety of media organizations um, and obviously learned uh, more about the country and I also worked quite a lot more on cultural and uh, historical um, material, translating uh, novels, historical books and so learning more about the country that way. And then I returned to the UK nearly five years ago uh, and since we're talking about the conflict it's appropriate for me to say, you know, I'm married to um, an Azerbaijani guy, in fact, from Karabakh, but not from the part that uh, was controlled uh, at any time uh, by Armenia. Uh, And so obviously, so I have different insights uh, into it from there, but I'm still in touch with people in Armenia. Um, 
who I met uh, when I used to travel there for the BBC. So it's so it's a mixed background, but focused very much on the Caucasus. And now I work uh, uh, doing literary translation, uh, translation of other kinds. Um, and so I, I sort of I, I switch between the political and the cultural, I'd say. Thank you very much. Uh, as mentioned in the introduction, the Azerbaijani-Armenian conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh has received very little attention from the Western media. So, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us briefly about the history of the conflict. Why is an Armenian majority enclave situated inside Azerbaijan? Are there other native Armenians in Azerbaijan proper and Azeris in Armenia? Right, I'll go back a little bit just to ex um, to set the scene because this part of the world, uh, Azerbaijan and um, and Armenia, uh, were both as areas as most of that part of the world multi-ethnic in the sense that you had areas with more Azerbaijan ethnic Azerbaijani towns and villages, but they were often mixed. It might be an Azerbaijani town, but there would be an Armenian suburb and vice versa. So the areas were um, both Azerbaijan and Armenia had both ethnic Az Azerbaijanis and ethnic Armenians living there. Um, changes came, um, I won't go too far back, but in the 19th century, when um, the Russians sort of in the 1820s finally took um, what is now that what isn't generally known as the South Caucasus, when they took that from uh, Iran, uh, control changed and the Russian attitude, which in a way is also a part of this conflict. Uh, they had taken new territories, particularly in Azerbaijan, and they were keen to settle uh, other peoples there. I mean, they, uh, to make the territories more manageable in their view. So, for example, one group that came where ethnic Germans came to settle, I mean, they were mostly peasants and built their settlements in largely Georgia and Azerbaijan as they now are. But also, while Armenians, there were already Armenians in the region, but more Armenians also came to the region at that time. Some from it, quite a number from Iran who settled in uh, what's now known as Nag um, some circles as Nagorno-Karabakh. So all these, and often there were changes as there were in any region um, for economic reasons. For example, Baku in Azerbaijan became a thriving city because of oil and people of different ethnicities moved to work in the oil industry. So that's kind of the background. Um, and there's also always been, since Russia sort of took control, conquered that territory, brought it into the Russian um, empire as was, they've often, the Russian government had often seen Armenia as, as Armenians, I should say, in this instance, ethnic Armenians, as potentially a strategic ally as a Christian peoples against the, around the majority Muslim peoples in the Caucasus that was their new territory. And so that relationship continued in different forms uh, and also in the Soviet period. In the Soviet period, it was more an issue, I think, of Turkey being, of course, a NATO member. And so for Moscow, it was very important not to uh, you know, to, to try and keep a barrier between any sort of Turkic peoples within their, the Soviet Union and uh, Turkey as far as possible. And so they often used Armenia uh, to do this, sort of to strengthen as they saw it. The Armenian uh, 
so Armenia's position within the Soviet Union and within the Soviet hierarchy was quite strong. Um, and I think this was partly because of this strategic interest that Russia um, or the Soviet uh, center in Moscow had in how they were going to manage the South Caucasus as a region. So that's part of this whole background to how this uh, area of Nagorno-Karabakh was created, is that Karabakh itself was a region in the South Caucasus and Karabakh was a carnate um, for over about, about 200 years with its capital in Shusha. And that was how it was when the Russians took over in the South Caucasus. And so the region Karabakh is still in uh, Azerbaijan's understanding is quite is a large region and it's bigger than um, Nagorno-Karabakh. It, it covers most of Western, uh, a large chunk of Western Azerbaijan. And then in the Soviet uh, era in the 1920s, when uh, maps were being drawn again and finalizing what was going to be the Soviet Repu Socialist Republic of Azerbaijan and what would be Armenia, um, the Soviet decision was taken to create Nagorno-Karabakh, which by drawing a rather arbitrary line around the town of Shusha, which had been the capital of the Khanate, and the village of uh, what is now what became the capital of Nagorno-Karabakh, Stepanakert, to give it its Armenian name, though at the time it was known as Khanhendi because it was later renamed after the Bolshevik, Armenian Bolshevik, Stepan Shamyat, Stepan Shamyat. And so this little area was drawn, and I think with an idea of managing ethnically the region, and the boundary was drawn in such a way that the region had a majority Armenian population. But that's not to say that there were Azerbaijanis, particularly in one part of Stepanakert, just as there were Armenians in the largely Azerbaijani city of Shusha. It was still quite mixed, but most villages tended to have a majority of one or the other um, ethnicity. And I think by creating this region, it was just something that I think that the uh, powers in Moscow thought they could use to control, to give them more control of the area. So it's a bit like a, a dividing, uh, divide and rule. Yes basically. So it remained Azerbaijan, but it was known as an autonomous region, autonomous oblast. Um, and this later on, when it came into the 1980s, uh, this is, well, rather than going into the conflict, that's how, that's how the area was created. Um, Okay. But then when it came into the conflict, I, it's probably, I'll say a little bit about the conflict and then about whether there are people yeah. of each ethnic group remaining, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is an interesting question. Because um, the conflict was sort of the build-up began in the 80s, during the 80s amongst that there were, within the Armenian population in Nagorno-Karabakh, there were uh, those who wanted their autonomous region to become part of Armenia. Um, and this grew in the 80s when, as I referred, actually I mentioned a bit earlier, when uh, with Glasnost and Gorbachev sort of taking, slightly taking the lid off what people were allowed to say or not to say and allow it, making it easier for people to, you know, freedom of assembly. Um, so the, and this movement grew. Uh, and at the time, initially it was, there was an, uh, movement in Yerevan and in Stepanakert called Miatsum, meaning unity. And the idea was that at first they thought they would, they wanted uh, Nagorno-Karabakh to join Armenia. Um, this wasn't accepted by the um, Soviet authorities. And then, so the, um, 
and tensions were running high in Nagorno-Karabakh itself between Armenian and Azerbaijani villages and parts and there were clashes and it all began it began to grow from I think for people that at the time it from what would seem relatively small incidents which flared up into much larger ones um with, with different sides seeking you know revenge and that's how it and it grew into a full-scale war after but this by then that was after the um Soviet Union had actually collapsed and the aim became the stated aim became not unity for Karabakh and uh, Armenia but for Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia but for self-determination um, because I think on the Armenian side they realized politically internationally they were they wouldn't be able to um, sort of sustain uh, um, this demand for unity plus in fact geographically um, Nagorno-Karabakh isn't contiguous with Armenia there is a, a strip of territory, a wide one, a mountainous territory between it, um, which is not inhabited by ethnic Armenians, very few at that time. Uh, so it didn't fit really as part of Armenia anyway. And so as part of that war in which the Armenians, uh, ethnic Armenians gained the upper hand for a variety of reasons, uh, it became. It was also fierce fighting, and a lot of Azerbaijanis, well, pretty much all Azerbaijanis, were driven out both of Nagorno-Karabakh and of the seven districts surrounding it, um, and many um, villages and towns were destroyed. Uh, not so much some in the fighting, but mostly after the fighting, um, both in terms of looting or, or also. Uh, to create a cordon sanitaire so that the Azerbaijanis would find it difficult to return. And this, this was what Nagorno-Karabakh said it was doing to protect itself. Um, and that was the situation for many years, 30 years before the more recent war. And so there were, and so of course there have been many Armenians in Azerbaijan and they left and the first, the biggest shock, I think what also made the war much more um, well, increased the, uh, what should we say, the, the ethnic reprisals was that there was an attack on Armenians in Sumgayit in February 1988, which I think it's between about 25 and 30 Armenians and six Azerbaijanis uh, were killed. Um, because Azerbaijanis, mostly Azerbaijani group attacked an um, Armenian residence. Most of the attackers were people who'd been uh, driven out of their homes in Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh and the Soviet authorities it still was the Soviet Union then they didn't really do anything to protect the Armenians it could be because they were shocked it could be because again it was part of the it was part of a sort of let there be trouble uh, philosophy on Moscow's part it's it there are different theories and different historians uh, interpret it differently. But that was a shock which led to many Armenians, ethnic Armenians, leaving both the town of Sumgait, which is north of Baku, and starting to leave Baku. And ethnic Azerbaijanis had been, were being driven out of Yerevan, where they'd lived. Because um, that had actually been a Khanate as well. It had been a large, at one time a very strongly Azerbaijani city. So there was this huge wave of refugees coming into Azerbaijan and a wave uh, 
of Armenians. Many went actually to Russia or abroad, and those who uh, and some went back to, and some went to Armenia. I shouldn't say go back because they didn't necessarily have ties with Armenia. Um, so it was a huge. There was a big population movement, and it was a huge, very traumatic for the people involved and for both countries actually. Um, and by the end of the war, especially for Azerbaijan, as they had sort of one tenth of the Azerbaijani population was either a refugee or internally displaced. So you know, it was a huge number. I mean, there'd be nobody in Azerbaijan who didn't know refugees personally because they were. There were so many of them, or IDPs, I should say, internally displaced people. So that's what led to this um, sort of polarization that large communities left both countries, um, and then the Azerbaijanis uh, were driven, had been driven out of Nagorno-Karabakh and the surrounding districts. But some did remain. I mean, I think the ones, it's, it's very hard to give numbers, but the ones who remained were usually more often than not women married to men of the opposite ethnicity, therefore they had the correct surname. People who'd made their homes there and some families. And likewise, um, I met people of Armenian or partial Armenian heritage, say in Azerbaijan, but you wouldn't know it by their surnames anymore um, because everyone who was known pretty much had left. But there, you know, some on all sides remained. And even some interesting cases that the... Um, one of the sisters of a former Armenian defense minister, and he, be, he didn't become defense minister until long after the Karabakh war. Uh, she still lives in Azerbaijan, had her family there and is perfectly happy there. Was <laughs> interviewed not that long ago. Um, you know, she lives in a, a rural life in a village. I mean, that was the family, type of family she came from. Um, so there are, you know, people who have managed to stay um, in their homes on both sides but not huge numbers and nobody knows for sure um, how many there are but of course now that situation is changing since uh, the um, more recent war. Thank you very much for that uh, very useful and informative uh, overview. Uh, what is the current state of play in the conflict and who controls Nagorno-Karabakh at the moment? Well um, in autumn 2020, uh, Azerbaijan and uh, retook uh, in a 44-day war, retook much of its territory in Nagorno-Karabakh and in the surrounding districts, uh, but not all of it, because they can, because it's important to mention Russia's involvement uh, here, in that. Before the, before the 2020 war, Russia had a large base in Armenia and has always had a large number of troops there. And in many ways had a sort of controlling influence over the situation. There'd been a time, um, 2016, uh, previously when Azerbaijan had been, uh, had, when fighting broken out again between Azerbaijani and Armenian troops uh, along part of the contact line um, should have to the contact line, not the border, because Armenian troops were well into Azerbaijani territory and beyond Nagorno-Karabakh as well. And so that line was called the contact line. The fighting Azerbaijan took a small amount of territory back, and it's generally held that Moscow basically said, "Stop, you know, you know, no more, no more fighting," and Azerbaijan pulled back. Uh, 
and with the war in autumn 2020, there were several factors, I think, that made the situation different. And of course, what I don't know is that how much Azerbaijan must have had some kind of contact with Russia before uh, or as part as they start as this operation started. Um, simply because the Russians did nothing, and this was before Ukraine, before um, the you know the latest war in Ukraine. After, obviously, it was after the, the Russians had taken Crimea and uh, part of uh, eastern Ukraine. But um, Arme the Armenian leadership had always thought, I think, that Russia would intervene to stop any kind of war happening. Um, but I think looking at what did happen is that Azerbaijan must have sort of told Putin that they would you know, only fight within Azerbaijani territory. Um, and that is in fact what happened. Uh, and so they took back control of territories which for thir nearly 30 years Armenian forces had controlled part of what had been the buffer zone. Although gradually and particularly in the last 10 years um, ethnic Armenians from the Middle East, in particular Syria, Lebanon, had uh, settlements had been built for some of them in parts of this buffer zone, this occupied territory, um, which is one of the factors of concern to Azerbaijan when they were uh, moving to retake their territory, because I think Russia had perhaps thought, and the Armenian, then Yerevan had thought that you know so much time had passed that things would just carry on like this. And Azerbaijan wouldn't make a serious move to get its territory back, although it had always said it would, if, um, you know, if negotiations came to nothing, because there had been a peace process. Um, and at one time, um, it had looked as though possibly, you know, autonomy had, the highest level of autonomy has, has been offered to the Armenians of Karabakh, but the, um, they were looking for uh, an independent, you know, independence in inverted commas, but it would be an independence that was very dependent on um, the rest of Armenia. Um, anyway, the peace talks over 30 years, the mediation had come to nothing. Uh, so uh, at a point, and I think this is where Pashinyan, who was as, who is Armenia's president, had sort of pushed and pushed and quite possibly pushed um, Putin as well into annoyance, which is why uh, Azerbaijan they didn't intervene when Azerbaijan started to retake territory because in 2020, in summer 2020, um, well, actually in spring 2020, Armenia had um, a new defence policy, the, time, the name of which was New War for New Territory, meaning new territory within Azerbaijan is how it was perceived in Baku, and, had, and started to make quite um, both bellicose statements and statements of mockery towards Azerbaijan saying, for example, they were going to move the uh, Karabakh would move its parliament from Stepanakert to Shusha, which had been an Azerbaijani city. And so this was sort of a way of, you know, they were just, you know, just humiliate um, Azerbaijan and further um, after having, they'd, after they'd lost all this territory. So I think, so this fed into concern in Baku and then in the summer more seriously, even those moves, although the new war, new territory was a serious um, policy on the part of the Armenian Defence Ministry. Um, there was an incident along the border in the north between our, the actual border between Azerbaijan and Armenia outside Karabakh and the occupied territories. 
um, and in the near where pipe oil pipeline, the main oil pipeline passes from um, going from south of Baku through Georgia. And this instance, as though uh, I mean, it looked from Baku's the Baku point of view that Armenians were trying to move into Azerbaijani territory, and it was reported from the Armenian perspective in Yerevan, it was the Azerbaijanis moving into Armenian territory. But looking at it logically, that seems in that sense unlikely because it was the established border and there was no reason to you know, start a clash. Anyway, this clash, I think, really unsettled Baku because it looked as though it was Armenian forces saying, oh, look, you know, we can come and move and occupy land overlooking strategic heights, overlooking your oil pipeline. And so I think all this fed into the decision in Baku that they would take back the territory in uh, autumn 2020. And the operation does seem to have taken on the Armenian forces and the Nagorno-Karabakh forces by surprise. And so Azerbaijan regained most, most of the occupied territories around Nagorno-Karabakh. And they regained part in the south and a bit of territory in the northeast of Nagorno-Karabakh. So they retook the city of Shusha, which uh, is particularly significant, has symbolic significance as well for Azerbaijan as a historic and cultural centre. Um, and so it's left an area, Stepanakert, and the area around that, and quite a lot of Armenian villages, which are controlled, still controlled by Nagorno Karabakh, with the support of uh, Russian, and I say in inverted commas, peacekeepers, because the war ended. Uh, with a deal between signed between Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Russia, uh, which included Armenia withdrawing its troops from more of the occupied territories and Russia bringing its troops into Nagorno-Karabakh. And so there are now Russian troops on the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh, so on Azerbaijan's legal territory. Um, and so that is what the Russians gained as a result of the war. So to say who controls Nagorno-Karabakh... Um, Azerbaijan controls far more of it than it used to, but it doesn't control all, all of it. And there is the uh, in, in so-called independent, self-declared independent Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is the, t the town or, or city, if you like, of Stepanakert, and quite a lot of the villages around there, which were many ethnic Armenians still are. Um, and there's this very large Russian base now in, um, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So the peacekeepers, they don't... It was in that Russia's strategic aim, really, is just to have, is to have a base and keep this area, as it were, under its control. This is Russia's back door, is, as it were. Because they don't... The troops don't really seem to do a great deal in terms of peacekeeping, but they do maintain the status quo on the whole. Um, so that's kind of as to who controls it. So it's partly Russia, partly Azerbaijan, partly the Nagorno-Karabakh Armenians themselves, sort of. But they're not, they're kind of restricted in what they can do by Russia. Um, so it's a very, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a very complex situation, I think is also partly why it doesn't get much coverage in the West, or when it does, it tends to be on a pretty superficial level because then, you know, most journalistic organisations aren't prepared to put in maybe the amount of money and work it would take to really explain what's going on, because it is very complex. Um, but Russia made an attempt uh, at the end of last year 
uh, to uh, put their own uh, man, as it were, in charge in uh, the Armenian, the ethnic Armenian declared part of Nagorno-Karabakh, what the Armenians call the Republic of Artsakh. Uh, and this was uh, an ethnic Armenian from Russia who had worked closely, has worked closely with uh, Dmitry Medvedev, former president and uh, Putin ally. He'd sort of been his... Um, um, been doctor would be the wrong word. He worked on his image and he's also been a businessman. And this guy was sort of parachuted in saying to be a new job was created for him as sort of minister of state. And Russia wanted Azerbaijan to negotiate with him, to which they said no. Um, and of course, he'd been brought in over the heads of the local army, ethnic Armenian leaders within Nagorno-Karabakh. And so basically, Azerbaijan said no and stuck to their no and started uh, a picket, which is still in place on the road, that what's called the Lachin Corridor, which leads from Nagorno-Karabakh into Armenia, Armenia proper. So it's crossing the district of Lachin, part of which is now back under Azerbaijan's control, but the corridor uh, is controlled by Russian troops, but uh, Azerbaijani protesters... Um, Obviously, there's a protest with government backing uh, eco-protesters um, because there are environmental concerns and they have legitimate uh, concerns about mining um, by Armenian companies in Azerbaijani territory in Nagorno-Karabakh. But they've been picketing the Lachin Corridor. At one time, hardly any vehicles were getting through now. I mean, I think most vehicles, certainly ICRC and a lot of, um, a lot of traffic on the road. Um, but when this picket was put in place, it was part of, you know, and Azerbaijan was sort of, it's also sending messages. Um, and it was just sort of saying, we're not going to talk to this Baudanyan, um, who's been brought in from Moscow. Um, and he left Nagorno-Karabakh. And I'm not quite sure what he's going to do. I think he's back in Russia now. Um, well, he said he'd renounced his Russian citizenship. Uh, but I, not sure where he's got to now. <laughs> so this is part of the um, situation into who is who is controlling what within Nagorno-Karabakh, and it is um, it's com it's it's complicated and it's hard to see that the Russians wouldn't move against the protesters, the Russian troops, if they really wanted to. I don't know. It's um, I suspect that their mission is simply to stay there rather than to help find a solution, which, of course, isn't, you know, which means the conflict would, again, just drag on um, with no, uh, without being resolved, um, unless there are countries that are genuinely interested in uh, um, you know, helping to broker a long-term peace agreement. Um, okay, thank you very much. Politically and normally, I should say as well, is Nagorno-Karabakh actually operating as an autonomous entity, or the Armenian part of it, um, uh, I mean, or is it uh, sort of directly controlled by Armenia? It's it's a mixture. I mean, it was never, I mean, even before the sort of 2020 war, when uh, it, it was sort of stronger, um, and had more control over its area. It was. It wasn't a wholly autonomous entity. I mean, it has the structures of an autonomous entity. It has a parliament, um, and and it did have a population of about 
180,000, um, which then went down to 120,000. It never really grew throughout its entire 30 years um, because it's actually very cut off. Uh, but it did um, survive, but with a lot of support from Armenia proper. I mean, for example, the actually the army, it's, it's their, their Armenians from their, their Armenians from Armenia proper who were serving as conscripts and were serving in Nagorno-Karabakh, although uh, it was said that it was the Nagorno-Karabakh army. And obviously, but with such a small population, they wouldn't have been able to sustain an army out of their own, um, you know, residents. Um, and the situation's actually become... So they're still part, largely dependent, of course, on Armenia proper, which is largely also largely dependent in many ways on Russia, because Russia has made itself um, over the years of uh, over the last thirty years since um, the end of the Soviet Union. You know, Russia controls several strategic assets in Armenia, um, largely pretty much power generation and um, railways. And for example, you know, there's still a nuclear power station in Armenia, so obviously they get the servicing, the maintenance, uranium via Russia. Um, and ironically, um, it's actually Russian troops that control Armenia's external borders um, with, for, with Turkey, for example, and with Armenia, uh, with, with Iran. The actual troops are Russian troops and always have been, which is the worst a slightly uh, odd yeah, thing yeah. for a sovereign country to have another country guarding its borders. Yeah, so basically, as far as the uh, political control of Nagorno-Karabakh is concerned, we can say it's nominally uh, autonomous, but very highly dependent on Armenia. Yes, yeah. My, my next question is about the uh, international foreign dimension of the conflict. Uh, mm -hmm. Azerbaijan, Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh, as we know, were constituent parts of the Soviet Union. So... It isn't that surprising that Russia is involved in the conflict, but Turkey and Iran are also involved. What roles are the three countries playing? What is the extent of their involvement? Is the United States and or its allies, apart from Turkey, also involved? Yes, it's the involvement is in different levels. Uh, maybe well, Iran's involvement, um, of course, as a close neighbour but with, uh, as a country with a border with Azerbaijan and Armenia. And with, uh, it did border on the occupied territories surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh. And so from, you know, for over 25 years, closer to 30 years, Iran actually had an uncontrolled stretch of border, which is with the, between the occupied territories and Iran. So whereas the, the border between Armenia and Iran was guarded by um, Russian forces, there were, it was sort of an unguarded border, although difficult to cross geographically because of the river and mountains. So Azerbaijan's charge was often to Iran that they used this border as part of drug smuggling because, of course, Iran is a major route for drug smuggling, both from Iran and from Afghanistan into Russia and uh, further then from there, potentially onto Europe. Um, so there was an involvement there through Iran had gained this area of uncontrolled border, but there's also um, involvement, just practical involvement in that 
since Azerbaijan, since Iran has a land border with Armenia, a lot of goods uh, would be imported through it, and goods reached most sort of good, a lot of goods from Iran reached um, Nagorno-Karabakh by road. And one of the ironies of this is that that part of Iran is, uh, of course, ethnically um, Azerbaijani largely, um, and most of the lorry drivers. Uh, driving into Nagorno-Karabakh were ethnic, uh, ethnic um, Azerbaijanis, Iranian citizens. But it was it was good business, and so they wasn't. You know, so they were involved in a practical, commercial way, and then on the now on the political level, on the different stages. Um, you know, the relationship between Azerbaijan and Iran is much. It's very difficult, to put it mildly. Um, and this does go back to early in the conflict when I think Azerbaijan expected more support from Iran um, over the conflict. And at one stage, you know, the, the Iranians were under Rafsanjani were brokering peace talks. A deal was reached. This was in '92, and almost immediately afterwards, um, a ceasefire deal. This is, was reached in '92, and almost immediately afterwards, uh, the Armenian ethnic Armenian forces took control of uh, the city of Shusha. And so Azerbaijan thought. Um, yeah, I'm not saying the Iranians knew that this was about to happen, but clearly the ceasefire deal wasn't worth the paper it was written on. Um, and this led to more, a lot of mistrust. And during the more recent war, you know, Russia sends its weapons were sent uh, via Iran into Armenia and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh to fight on the Armenian side um, until there were a lot of, uh, sort of demonstrations by ethnic Azerbaijanis in Iran objecting to this. But basically, you know, Iran is a close ally of Armenia and of Russia, of course. So the relationship there is um, is tricky uh, in terms of Azerbaijan and Iran. Then Russia, of course, as you say, as the former um, colonial power, is a major, has a big influence on, in both uh, countries. Turkey is, is less of Turkey is a close ally of Azerbaijan for. Um, and was carefully cultivated by Azerbaijan in the um, early stages of independence, which also coincided with the early stages of the war, because they saw, you know, Turkey was an ally um, and is closely involved in Azerbaijan in business, especially. Um, and also, more recently, in the more recent war, uh, Azerbaijan has bought weapons from Turkey, and also, but we'll come on to later from Israel. But that's a slightly separate uh, relationship. Um, Turkey, I would say, is less involved in, although in the war in the autumn, they did, in autumn 2020, you know, there were Turkish uh, fighters uh, on the ground uh, at Azerbaijani, uh, Azerbaijani military airport. Um, and so they were giving a show of support, but which in the end wasn't actually used. So, so they are there, certainly with military support, say, sales of weapons, training. Um, you know, Turkey has for a long time trained from the Turkic Republic, not only Azerbaijan, for example, trained um, army officers uh, and others, and also involved them in NATO. I mean, this was in Turkey as a NATO country. So sort of on the irony is Azerbaijan has been involved in NATO exercises um, a great deal as well. Um, particularly in, and also in Afghanistan as a route for uh, planes, uh, cargo planes reloading or refueling uh, on the way to Afghanistan back in the days of the uh, occupation there. So it, 
so that was the relationship. But actually, in terms of a long, in terms of foreign countries, the USA, France, and Russia were the three countries mediating a solution to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict um, for many years, uh, known as the known as the co-chairman of the OSC Minsk Group. And they did in the early 2000s, on a couple of occasions, it looked as though a potential deal to solve the conflict was actually going to happen. And they would send monitors frequently, they would send their co-chairman to negotiate um, in both Baku and in Yerevan. And then gradually in the last, I would say, eight or nine years, there's been little, they've done very either lost interest or not really done very much, stopped. They used to sort of protest uh, to either side if they felt that they were breaking ceasefire terms. And they just became less, seemed to become less involved in seeking a solution to the conflict. Well, really, because all that, because what they were pushing for was for Azerbaijan to agree some kind of independence, really, for Nagorno-Karabakh, which they wouldn't agree to. And so the peace process really was going nowhere. Um, occasionally it almost came to something, but it never did. So the USA and France have both been um, and often still are very involved in the conflict. Although, uh, you know, Russia much more closely because it is much more, much closer physically and it has its troops on the ground. Um, but an interesting, um, lots of interesting um, aspects to the different international relationships because uh, you it's a surprising fact, but one of the USA's largest embassies, not as big as Baghdad, but remarkably, apparently bigger than Beijing, is in Yerevan, and you wouldn't, which is something you wouldn't expect. I mean, I would assume that the reason it, they have such a big embassy is that they're spying on Iran from there, um, but I don't know. <laughs> so, USA is rather curious. So, yeah, so it's an interesting balance. Uh, one viewpoint from Iran is that Azerbaijan is used as a proxy for, uh, by the United States to encircle Iran. Uh, how true is that? I don't think... The United States might have liked to. I would... Azerbaijan uses its relationship really with the United... It's not as close to the United States in a way because of the... They, it felt less supported over Nagorno-Karabakh, yeah. although it has good relations with the US. And it was, you know, and as I said before, it was active um, in supporting, you know, the US over Afghanistan in sort of practical terms. Um, I'd say probably, or maybe, and certainly now, of much more concern to Iran is Azerbaijan's relationship with Israel. Yeah. Um, Okay, our final question is in fact about that relationship between Azerbaijan and Israel. According to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, from 2011 to 2020, Israel accounted for 27% of Azerbaijan's major imports of, uh, of weapons. And from 2016 to 2020, Israel accounted for 69% of Azerbaijan's major arms imports. What's behind these close ties? Is Israel involved in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict? Not directly. Um, I think there, there are a couple of reasons and then go, um, go back to 
Azerbaijan's generally always had good relations with Israel, and Israel opened an embassy fairly early on uh, when Azerbaijan became independent. Um, and part of the reasons then would be, well, from Israel's point of view, I'm sure they were particularly interested in Iran. Um, there are Jewish communities, oh, you know, long-standing Jewish communities in Azerbaijan, um, and there still are today, uh, and they... You know, they have, and so that also encourages good ties. You know, the Jews basically live um, without any real problem in Azerbaijan, um, which, from what people tell me, is what used to be. So, for example, the case in Iran that you know before the um, revolution. Yeah. Um, and so there is so those ties, and then also, of course, there are actually the practical ties in that a lot of Azerbaijani Jews emigrated to Israel. Um, especially in the 1990s when there was the chaos of the war and economic hardship and a lot of um, political and economic uncertainty. Um, so there's, there were those ties as well. But I think um, and then when, and also actually Israel is a market for Azerbaijan's oil and gas uh, too. So they have that economic tie. But the weapons are very interesting because Azerbaijan began... 10 to 15 years ago, actually, building, slowly building up both its own arms industry and importing weaponry from Israel and from Turkey mainly, from other places, too, and also from Russia, because, of course, when all this Russia is, supplies weapons to both sides. <laughs> but Azerbaijan also realised that the far more modern weaponry coming from, especially from Israel and then also from Turkey, and I think you know, Israel was keen to cultivate Azerbaijan because of it, you know, it being close to Iran. Um, and so I think it's a mutual, I'd say it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Because um, at one stage, going to the, because of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, Azerbaijan hoped that by building up its weaponry, because non interesting, none of this was done in secret. They actually, it was published, it was made quite public by uh, the Azerbaijani side in the hope of persuading uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh Armenians to negotiate uh, but it, that, that aspect didn't work. And I think also possibly the Armenian side thought, you know, that they're spending all this money, um, it's for show, not actually to use any of this weaponry, because they've bought some very, you know, very advanced um, Israeli weaponry. And one thing, uh, military, um, you know, analysts a lot who've looked into the war in uh, autumn 2020, you know, weapons were fired from... Well, there's some question marks over exactly where they came from, but it couldn't have been without Russian permission. Uh, some from Armenian territory at uh, Azerbaijani civilian settlements, also at the Turkish, um, I think some at the Turkish plains, and also just before the uh, ceasefire was signed, uh, fired at Baku itself. But in certain areas, you know, Azerbaijan has the uses the, it said, uh, the Iron Dome system. Uh, from Israel, um, which in terms of dealing with individual missiles can be quite effective. You know, the Russians didn't talk much about this because the failure of their hardware, you know, their weaponry was to them an embarrassment. But of course, they couldn't even acknowledge that they'd been behind firing it on Azerbaijan. But I think that the, we the attacks on Azerbaijan's territory, I'm slightly digressing going back to the conflict, were an attempt to draw Azerbaijan into attacking Armenian territory because that would have changed the nature of the conflict and then it could have involved Russia and other countries in this collective security agreement.
as they have agreements about protecting one another if their territories are attacked. And um, Russia is, um, Azerbaijan is not part of this agreement, but uh, Armenia is. And had hoped that Russia would consider Nagorno-Karabakh Armenian territory, but you know, legally it isn't. Um, and they didn't consider it Armenian territory. So, so you can see how the weaponry, weaponry being used from Israel, you know, from Azerbaijan's point of view, they were you know, taking it for their own defences. And of course, it may well be, it's entirely possible that Israel is also supplying some of these advanced weaponry in terms of Azerbaijan being able to protect itself from a, protect itself from a potential Iranian threat. Maybe not. I mean, this isn't said. This yeah, yeah, yeah. Speculation. <laughs> Um, but it's a very interesting relationship. And just very recently, um, and things are, um, Azerbaijan for many, many years resisted opening an embassy in Israel. And it's only happened very recently this year. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's seen as in Azerbaijan so that pro Iranian forces within Azerbaijan, because of course, through the network of Shia mosques, there are those in which you know, Iranians have been very active throughout ever since Azerbaijan's independence. And, you know, there was an attack on um, an assassination attempt near Baku on a member of parliament who's spoken out against, um, who himself is a, uh, he is known as a uh, man of religion. He's not a cleric, but he's been very critical of uh, Iran, amongst other um, peoples or countries he's been critical of. I mean, he said to have survived this assassination attempt, though actually nobody, I don't think anyone's actually seen him yet, he's still in hospital. Um, so this is a real, and Azerbaijan has arrested a lot of people who they say were involved in the attack, in the attack, they Azerbaijan's own citizens, but it's thought they're all working for Iran. I mean, it's a very, um, this is a slight, you know, it, it's Iran's influ you know, influence, you know, its attempt to create a similar sort of Shia state within Azerbaijan, it's a risk that's, uh, you know, of obvious concern to Azerbaijan. So geopolitically, um, it seems that the main factor behind the Israel-Azerbaijan relationship is basically uh, Iran, the mutual antipathy or fear mm, of, of Iran. Yes. And on, on the periphery, you've got the fact that Israel can supply Azerbaijan with more modern weapons than, uh, than it has hitherto been able to get. And also, uh, lastly, we would say the Jewish community, although the, the influence of that... Yes, I mean, that's, um, um, you know, that's just a sort of, yes, that's probably how it maybe just helped build that relationship yeah. in the early days. But no, it's much more a very practical one. Um, any final comments on the Karabakh conflict? Yes, uh, one thing that's interesting, because I, I think, as you said, your, one of your podcasts will um, be covering Ukraine uh, in the future. Just um, in, and it, sort of interesting aside, uh, things which in, may have just sparked little concerns. In no way am I saying that these are the issues... That that were major that were decisive in yeah. Putin deciding to take his actions in Ukraine. But the interesting thing about the the autumn twenty twenty war is it's the first it was the first one really where drones were used to you know considerable effect uh, 
by the Azerbaijani side. And Ukraine, Azerbaijan has very good relations with Ukraine. Um, and, so, as all, and so the Ukrainians are watching this as well with, with interest. And it's a bit just as it might have occurred to the Russians that the Ukrainians might decide to use drones in Crimea, for example, in an attempt to regain their territory or in eastern Ukraine. So just one very small, um, that would have just been one very small factor. And as it's been seen, you know, drones are being used, the Turkish ones, especially in the, in the war uh, in Ukraine. So that's, a sort of, that's just how one thing followed on from, you know, I suppose it's just natural in the, term, in the way that uh, military technology develops. And so from one, sadly, from one war to another, you'll get different uses of technology. And just one thing I realised that I had, don't think I mentioned um, on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, as I said, it is complicated, um, as I did forget to say, there were back, remarkably, looking at it now, but back in 1993, there were actually four resolutions of the UN Security Council calling for, you know, foreign troops to be withdrawn um, and, and a ceasefire. Uh, when I say foreign troops calling for Armenian troops to be withdrawn from Azerbaijan and a ceasefire four resolutions at each stage when the war developed further. Of course, they remained on paper, but um, they sort of highlighting that, you know, in terms of international law, this is Azerbaijani territory. Um, the Armenian side would kind of counter and say, yes, but, you know, self-determination, you know, that the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh should have a right to self-determination. Um, but that's... You know, which, and those are similar arguments used, you know, for example, the Russians saying in eastern Ukraine or in Crimea, oh, it's self-determination, this is Russian land, oh, this is the Russians of, uh, in the east of Ukraine want to be, they say, Russian, and that's their choice. So it's these similar arguments coming up, and again, on the territory of one former empire. So it's not surprising that you get similar uh, geopolitical you know, arguments being used to justify different side. Well, thank you very much. Interesting point about the drones, because uh, uh, one new market for Israeli-made drones, which are said to be fairly advanced, is Morocco. And Morocco uh, has openly said it intends to use those drones against the Polisario Front, which is fighting for the independence of the uh, former Spanish territory of the Western Sahara. Yes, so there you are. Yes, yeah. So... Sadly, but as you say, yeah, if you're watching where the weapons are going and which weapons, it might, yeah, it's an indication as to what might be coming up in terms of future conflict well, or escalation of conflict, I should say. Thank you very much for a, a very interesting uh, podcast. Uh, that you're was, welcome. Uh, that was Caucasus analyst uh, Anne Thompson talking to me, Mohammed Eldafani, on Five Minutes to Midnight about the Azerbaijani Armenian conflict over the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh.